Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of perspectives and topics sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations that we gift to the public, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you want the references and takeaways from each episode sent to you, I welcome you to sign up to our weekly newsletter at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode where we're speaking with Dr. Monica Galliano. The planet is, when you get a fever, is because you contracted something. There is a, an issue underlying the fever. So you don't try to just uh, fix up the fever, you go to the source. And I think that what we need to do, and, and then everything else really will follow out of it, is to regenerate the human spirit. Dr. Galliano, the author of Thus Spoke the Plant, is a research associate professor in evolutionary ecology at Southern Cross University. Her work has extended the concept of cognition in plants, and notably, she pioneered the research field of plant bioacoustics, for the first time showing that plants emit their own quote-unquote voices and detect and respond to the sounds of their environments. As you might imagine, by demonstrating experimentally that learning is not the exclusive province of animals, she's reignited the discourse on plant subjectivity and ethical and legal standing. We begin here as Dr. Galliano shares about the relationship she's pondered about between imagination and science. As a scientist herself called to push the boundaries of the fields of research that she's been engaged with. There is a kind of science, there is the one that we have decided is the mainstream, the status quo, whatever we want to call it. And that kind of science portrays itself as very dry and very, in a way, unimaginative. I say portray because I know from the inside that that is also not true. And whether it is a knowledge that there is a component of imagination or not, that's a different story, but imagination plays a role regardless. So whether the scientists are aware or not, imagination is an, an essential ingredient. There is no other way out. You cannot explore something that doesn't exist yet or that you don't know about yet unless you can imagine it and you can imagine it possible. I guess uh, what I did with my work is just making that link a little bit more explicit and instead of pretending that I'm not using imagination, I actually embrace that. It's like, of course I'm using imagination. What else can I do to even conceive something that we don't know yet and we haven't explored yet? The issue with science, I guess, when it becomes very unimaginative is that it doesn't really, it's not science anymore anyway. So we, we call it science and we think that is science, but actually that is no longer science because science is an art form. And like every other art form, it demands the imaginative, the creative to be a play. And, and if that part is not there, then we're not really exploring anything. We're not asking anything new. We're not looking for learning and even wisdom. We're just repeating what we already have. And, and that doesn't do anything. So 
but I guess the the maybe one of the issues that we are facing at the moment that a lot of the science that it is done in the major institutions is often of this second kind, the one that doesn't really it's safe because uh, we kind of already know it's going to work, and uh, and we know we do need to you know report and fulfill our you know our duty to the grants and all of that. So to produce a science that is kind of safe, that is kind of a, a slight variation of what we already done last year. It, it works. It works for the system and it works for careers. It supports careers, but it doesn't mean that it's actually doing anything real to advance knowledge. is is not at the service of a bigger picture, a bigger whole. And every time I often sit in the morning, I sit outside, I have my, I do my practice in the morning, my meditation, and then I sit outside and have my breakfast in the sun. And I often look out and feel very grateful that I have the life I have. And, and I feel very grateful and honored that I'm paid to, like, my job is to be as imaginative as I can so that I can do the best science that I can. And so in a way, not doing that feels like a rip-off, a ripping off of the opportunity that the scientist has been given, but also a rip-off to the society who is supporting this aspect, fortunately, still supporting this aspect of our culture that is not necessarily going to deliver anything immediately. It's not about the products or what we can sell. It's just for the pure sake of exploring. And often when we do it that way, that's when we find something magical and something amazing that we didn't know before. So imagination is always there, but somehow we we have decided that uh, in some environments it's got a bad reputation. Mm. So we don't speak of it and we pretend it's not there, but it's there regardless. So yeah, I don't know how to get out of it, basically. And so I think for me, the best way has been to just uh, instead of trying to get out of it, get into it as much as possible. Yeah. So basically, a lot of the science that is practiced, especially through research institutions, they're more so going for perhaps expected outcomes, or they might have an idea of, oh, this is probably going to happen. Let's test it out to see if it happens, rather than being completely open-ended and being like, I don't know at all what's going to happen if I tried this, but let's just see what I can discover. That seems correct. And actually, expected outcome is often one of the, uh, the things that you have to fill in in a grant application. Is like, so what are you expecting to find? How mm. is it, what are you expecting? Which part are you expecting it to work? And uh, I don't know. The open-ended is what we call blue sky science. And it is very, very difficult to get funded for blue sky science, which literally means I've got this crazy idea. It could work, but possibly not. And uh, we are not going to know unless, unless we try. And, and in this sense, I've been very, very lucky because, uh, yeah, I've been able to do exactly that. Right. So it's not necessarily that there isn't a curiosity and this imagination there. It's just that there's this sort of institutional bias in terms of how research grants are being given out and therefore the types of research that is being done and the types of conclusions and findings that we are able to then receive. 
And then you also say that for you, the idea of imagination brings up this feeling of being unruly and out of control. And at the same time, you say that imagination is being embodied by nature and earth. And this reminds me of a recent conversation I shared with Dr. Bayo Akomolafe, where he mentions that earth is unframable and untamable and too unruly to be systemic. And I wonder if, you know, this might resonate with you and if you could elaborate more on how you view earth as an embodiment of imagination and how that might invite us to conceptualize or feel our ecological crises in different ways. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you just need to look outside or anywhere really and you will, uh, you will see, you don't have to know, but you will see the answer. But I'll give a, a, re- a little example of something that happened to me just two days ago. We just uh, got a new hive and the bees were very happy. The hive was very full. So we knew that they were going to swarm like possibly in the next few days. And they did. And we were so excited because we heard these real loud buzz and we thought oh, oh here we go so we ran outside and they, they were like uh, the, the sky was covered in bees and they were all moving together towards a tree and they created these amazing you know they they look like cliffhangers you know there are the bees that are attached to the to the actual branch who are holding on super tight and then everyone else is kind of hanging off each other creating this structure until you know they send the scouts out to to find a new home and when they find a suitable home then they all move and create a new hive so um, we were just so fascinated that we 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 got an approach really closely and everything and and my housemate stretched out his hand and he put his hand in, in the bee mass. <laughs> and it, it, it really felt, everything felt really peaceful and really okay. But what we didn't do was to listen deeply enough to realize that the bees might not be, might be okay for us to be there, but it's such a critical phase of their life you know they they just moved out of home and they're looking for a new home and they just did that so maybe don't disturb don't disturb me right now <laughs> and so we got a couple of uh, sting and in itself there was like uh you know like there were probably thousands of bees in this bundle in this mass and but I got like three stings and my housemates got a few more but you know considering what they could have done if they were really like, we're going to, you know, teach you a proper lesson here. Don't disturb when it's not the time. They only gave us a, almost like a, like a little slap on the hand, you know. And, and that reminded me of, it reminded me of how, you know, there is, a, again, there is always a relationship, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we can be very attuned to, to what's happening and in this case we could have been more attuned to the bees but in the end you know they have their own agency and they're going to do what they need to do and they're going to let us know if if we're trying to constrain and control something that is not that for us to control in this case we you know we really wanted them to go into a box so that we could have a new beehive and instead the bees were like no that's not what we have in mind and we're going to let you know that you have to go and they didn't, you know, hurt us too much. It was just like a little sting to remind us like, no, we are not here to be controlled. We're not here. So in that sense, there is this unruliness of like, uh, here is the human wanting a certain outcome. 
And here is a, an amazing group of bees say like, uh, uh, no, that's not the outcome that we want. And so to find this compromise, we'll have to push back, push you back by stinging you. And of course, this has happened to me in the ocean as well, where the ocean can be incredibly amazing and calm and and beautiful and then you're yet like you have times where it's very clear that if you come in here I can kill you Mm. (laughs) and this level of out of control it's also in the human I guess and so what what I see outside is like you know setting boundaries and also letting allowing and and we do this you know we we can experience this through this ecological system and these others but I guess the important bit is like, can we recognize it within the human itself and our society, especially at the moment, especially here in Australia, I, I don't know in other places, but here in Australia at the moment, it feels like uh, we've been controlled with everything that we do. You know, we are in lockdown and, you know, there are so many, so many conversations that they are trying to basically control every single movement and every single decision that you want to make and what kind of decision you're going to make. And, and it's a bit like the bees. Some people are, are stinging back because it's like, no, just I want to be able to make my own choice and my own decision about things. And, and of course, then there is like the bees, there is a collective of like, what is the best outcome for everyone? And finding the challenge, I guess, is finding the space where the individuals can still be an individual, but it's operating in a free way uh, in the context of the collective. And the bees seem to have done that really well. And in fact, I felt so humbled because, uh, of course, when bees sting you, they die. And the fact that some bees in this mass of bees decided to come and give us a lesson <laughs> and sting us, uh, knowing you know, that that was the end, but they were doing the right thing for, for, the, for the whole. And so they were still exerting their power of wildness and what that meant in that situation was, and I'm prepared to die for this. I am prepared to sacrifice myself for maintaining the, the wildness of my myself, which in a way is like the self is represented by the collective, no longer by the individual. So, yeah, I knew when that happened that I would be reflecting on this for a while. And now you ask me and I'm just starting, literally, I, I'm just starting to reflect about what they really showed us. And I'm sure I will have to think about it more, but yeah, it was pretty amazing. So I don't know if I actually answered your question, but this feeling of uh, unruliness is where the, our creative is because he's allowed to, to just do what instinctively it knows. And, and it doesn't mean necessarily it doesn't follow rules, you know, like there are rules and there are um, patterns that, Uh, we follow but some of the patterns that at least as humans we are following and we've been following in you know centuries now are so out of whack with the with the patterns that are present everywhere in nature that it just seems a bit weird and is in a way not surprising that we're not coping very well the the mental health issues that are emerging and I'm sure there will be a huge wave coming to us from all of the younger people who have been locked up in their apartments and not been able to socialize. And all of this is, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting because 
uh, I, I just find that it's going to show us very clearly what we're made of and what doesn't work for us as a species. It's like, uh, and why certain things are happening to the world as we know it. It's not because uh, the, suddenly there was an evil virus that is uh, you know, trying to kill us all, or maybe it is, but, <laughs> but it's just like, uh, how did we come to this? You know, how does our society come to this? And the only way to cope with this is to do what we're doing now. And we didn't, we didn't have anything in place that would allow for this unruliness to have the space that it needs to have because viruses are also part of this. Yeah. It definitely instills a deep sense of humility because I think oftentimes we try to conceptualize and make sense of the world in particular ways. And then as with the institutional bias of science, we might say that, you know, if we do this, then this will be the outcome and this is likely to happen. That's and right. this sort of, I guess, human-centric conclusion f- forgets that the world has its own agency and different beings and how they interact. And there's so much that we do not know and that is beyond our control. And the most dominant forms of knowledge that are shaping our understandings of how we can address our ecological crises and the fever of our earth, that is climate change, have been informed and shaped mostly by the field of science, again, with the embedded biases that it might have. And so we hear this rhetoric of, I believe in science as a way that people are expressing that they recognize the ills of our planet and really support actions to be taken. But even scientists take note of the lack of a holistic view that mainstream science might have, as well as its anthropocentric nature. And so I guess I worry a little bit about an unquestioned faith in science, like not in a conspiratorial climate change denial way, Mm -hmm. but in a way that perhaps recognizes that, hey, this could be about so much more than just greenhouse gas emissions, with concerns that failing to see the limitations of this lens might prevent us from also tuning into our other ways of knowing that could be critical to actually guiding us towards healing. That's right. I totally, I can't agree more. (laughs) And I guess, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, as a scientist, I think science is an incredible way to explore the world. But as a scientist, I can also say that there's not the only way to explore the world and to, to meet the world. I don't think that we are here to know. And that I think maybe is our our little issue (laughs) because uh, to know means that you have already resolved the thing. It's like, okay, now I know this thing and it's finished, it's closed. But to allow, I don't know, uh, to acknowledge that I don't know, it allows an open space where solution can actually arrive because if you already know, then you already also know the solution. And and even when you don't know the solution, you you already close the door to anything to open, to, to arrive, to enter. And, the situation with the well, our our little elephant in the room, which is of course not the virus, but um, a planet in uh, total change, and whether this change is going to support us as humanity or not is a question that should be pondered. But I guess the fundamentally is like a, the that elephant is not an issue of what science can provide in terms of technical solution. I totally believe, and it is just a belief, but I'm so convinced that we actually have all of the technical solutions that we could possibly need to 
resolve this problem. But that is that won't resolve the problem because that is not actually the core of the issue. The core of the issue is not that, oh, we have a planet that is increasing in temperature, therefore let's create clouds, which we are doing to trying to save the reef, for example. It's like, and, and what then? You know, like, uh, how does that resolve the core issue? The planet is, when you get a fever, it's because you contracted something. There is a, an issue underlying the fever. So you don't try to just uh, fix up the fever. You go to the source. And I think that what we need to do, and, and then everything else really will follow out of it, is to regenerate the human spirit. The regeneration is to be of the human, not of the land. The land also needs regeneration, of course, but that is almost like when we regenerate the human spirit to the point that the human realize again what the place is of our species in the context of the whole, and we can still, that doesn't mean that we lose our individuality as a species. It's just, again, like the bees, you know, you can be an individual bee, but you belong to a collective and the collective should come and must come first. And in this case, the collective is the collective of all the species and all the beings and all the, you know, including the planet itself. And, and when the human spirit is regenerated to, towards that again, then I think that some of the choices that we will make are not going to be even a question of whether science says so or, you know, whatever, whoever says so. It's just that it will be such an obvious thing to do. And, and so we will just be all doing that. We will be engaging that because that will be the most fulfilling and the most logical and most creative way to be here. And at the moment, we, it's almost like we are really struggling to just live in because we're not living. <laughs> so I'm excited in a way, because I think that this is probably, again, as a scientist, I think this is probably the biggest experiment that we could ever do. Can we actually regenerate the human spirit? And then the rest will follow. And, uh, and I guess, again, as a scientist, I suppose that's where I'm, I'm directing my work next. And that's why at the beginning I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm in that same place as when I shifted from my marine work to my plants work. And now I'm a place where I, f I really feel that what I needed to offer in terms of my science towards the plant, I've done. And uh, it's not that I don't have to do anymore, but it really feels to me that I have other work that I need to do. And, and I really don't know what that work is, but it's starting to take in shape. And, and I, I, feel, I feel the excitement of it and the impatience of it because I know, or actually I don't know, but it feels like it's... Uh, it's timely. It's, it's not even urgent. It's just like, a, but of course, that's what we need to do. And so I've been impatiently <laughs> thinking a lot about how and even how to verbalize what it is that I feel like I need to do next. So, yeah. And it sounds like you're embodying imagination as well and sort of letting how you feel and whatever needs to emerge, you know, giving the space for this to guide you. And as you share, as a scientist trying to know plants better, you're expected to think 
but for you, you're often guided by how you feel. And this reminds me of indigenous scientist and botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm not sure if you read it. I know you've also been hugely influenced by indigenous knowledge and recognize that it should complement and work with scientific knowledge. So can you share more about maybe the differences and the links you see between these forms of knowledge and how you work to build or bridge these two in your work as you try to become more intimate in how you relate with and understand plants? First of all, there are two bodies of knowing. And as always, it's like uh, really there are two lenses looking at the same thing, just in slightly Mm -hmm. different ways. And so in that sense, I don't think they are incompatible. And if anything, I think that we need all of the bits of knowledge that we have to, to, to move forward. So whether it's science, whether it's indigenous knowing, or whether it's uh, the arts and music, whatever it is that we have, it really feels like we need it all. <laughs> and let's bring it all to the table. But some of these bodies of knowledge, of course, like science, need to find their own um, regeneration, I guess. So in the case of science, for example, compared to uh, my experience of indigenous indigenous understanding of the world is that uh, science is still quite obsessed with uh, the idea that we are observing in objective ways the world and we can uh, know the world by separating ourselves from it and then looking at it as if it was an object. But objectifying the world is very dangerous because, and I think it is part of the, at the core of part of the problem that we are facing in the Western society in particular, where everything is being objectified, everything, (laughs) everything can be sold, everything can be bought. And it's like, uh, well, actually nothing can be bought. There is no money they could pay for a plant really, or there's no money they could pay or should pay for your time. And yet everyone is being bought. Your time is the only special thing that you have. Like it's your life. And eventually it will be, actually sooner it will be over and, and you sold it. You sold it away. What, what kind of crazy thing is that? Mm. But, um, and I think that that emerges from a very technoscientific perspective of objectifying, quantifying, dividing in little morsels so then you know you go your hours of work or you go your parcel of duties or you know everything is in these little parcels of quantities and it makes us feel I guess it makes us feel safe apparently (laughs) and yet it also shows when there are times like this where um, that kind of approach to the world doesn't work it makes us feel very vulnerable. And suddenly we are totally out of control, but we are trying to pretend everything is under control. And we, can't, we cannot remember how to surrender to the fact that actually you never really knew. Actually, you never had any control. And actually, the truth is that you were not meant to have any control of it. Why? Why would you? And um, I think the indigenous perspectives... And again, this is, I don't want to appropriate and indigenous is such a big word and it represents so much diversity. But fundamentally, my understanding is that it's about relating and relationships. And it's more about not knowing than knowing anything. Because only in the not knowing that you allow the other, whatever the other is, it can be 
uh, another human being, an animal, a plant, or even something or someone that is in a different reality from ours, a, a world that is inhabited by others, which are not necessarily material biological entities. So in that perspe- from that perspective, the world is rich and full of relationships. And if you don't go to this relationship already knowing, so putting your own expectation of what they should be, then you might have a chance to know actually who is there. And not only that, but in the process of relating, because you are made by those relationships too, you'll get a chance to know who you are (laughs) instead of buying a particular portrait of what you're supposed to be. So in that sense, I think indigenous approaches have this richness. And I don't want to romanticize them either. You know, there are plenty of issues within those areas too. But uh, fundamentally, at the core, it feels like there, are, there is this uh, relational approach to life in all its forms, which by objectifying life, science denies. And that it's a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> and we're seeing it right now as a result of it. This conversation is just giving me many flashbacks to past episodes, but particularly the one with Dr. Suzanne Simard, where we talked about the concerns with scientific objectivity and also about how people may critique her research on mother trees and forest intelligence as anthropomorphizing, which means making other beings Mm -hmm. seem human, which is typically viewed as a negative thing. But as you also inquire imaginatively about the intelligence and capacity for memory for plants, it makes me wonder whether the idea of anthropomorphizing is itself anthropocentric and that being able to recognize intelligence and feeling and memory in its vastly diverse forms that we may not even understand is actually an invitation to sort of omnimorphize our consciousness and perspectives. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, this reminds me of uh, uh, Susan and I met at a meeting a few years ago now, quite a few years ago, and we had been in contact before, like on uh, on email, but then finally we met in person and. And it just felt like this uh, coming together of two sisters. I just really felt this sisterhood feeling of connection with her. And and it was so funny because we were in this group of scientists. They invited about 20 of us. And the two of us kept looking at each other thinking like, uh, we are so different from these people. <laughs> like uh, We are almost like we don't look like the scientists. If these are the scientists, we don't even look like the scientists. And <laughs> It was very funny. And, uh, and of course, we had a lot of in common because we were both kind of looking from a similar perspective. And yeah, absolutely. I had obviously the same issue of uh, not just anthropomorphizing, but also like uh, all sorts of um, animistic perspective and no science and all sorts of things that are like, I still receive strange emails from some hardcore professors literally being quite rude and quite childish about everything. But uh, that's where the system is at. It cannot cope. It, it just highlights that it cannot cope with losing control. Control that, as I said before, it never had. But as soon as it feels threatened by change, what it can only, all it can do is trying to control even more, which is what we're doing a large in our society. And yet the solution doesn't, doesn't sit in controlling more. It sits in, oh, okay, I actually don't have any control 
all right, show me what's what's that what's there that I need to do and what I what is it that I need to encounter and experience now. And being um I really liked your description of the anthropocentric perspective because on one side it's totally I, I didn't really consider this. It's totally true that being anthropocentric means that you're actually it's another form of anthropos uh, anthropomorphic, sorry. Uh, it's another form of being anthrop- anthropocentric. For me, I always thought like, uh, well, what else can we be? We are the anthropos, right? We are the human. And like, uh, like all other species, we have our own experience of life as the human form. And we can attempt and, and at times with certain practices, we can even merge with other forms and have an expanded version of life and experience of life beyond just the constraint of the human experience. But in general, I would say that most of us, most of the time, can only have the human experience as the lens through which we look. So what's wrong with anthropocentrism and anthropomorphizing if they are understood for what they are? Anthropocentrism doesn't mean that we are special. It just means that this is the lens that we have because we are the anthropos. So we can only actually understand the world through being human. And uh, that doesn't make us anything special or different. It just states the fact that we are humans and not a bee. And so then anthropomorphizing, well, maybe that's the, the best way for us to, to get closer to, to others, to bring them closer to us. And uh, because it's the, that's the channel that allows us to... Uh, empathize and connect in the best way to be able to um, understand a bee uh, well I need to be a bee I guess and I've never been or maybe I have been a bee in a previous life but I don't remember (laughs) so all I have is my human experience and then I have you know when I said like oh the bees stand us to teach us a lesson maybe that's a very anthropomorphic way to describe the thing but ultimately it's the only way that I have to actually describe the feeling and the in that moment of relating. So um, it's when we get diverted into thinking that that makes us special and we become a golden standard for measuring everyone against our golden standard, so against the human model, that then we have a problem. But in, it's, and it's almost like... Um, yeah, it's almost like, a, in a way, it's a punishment. It's like, why, why would you reduce life to just one form as the, the model? Understanding and appreciating that that's who you are. Okay, you're not a tree, you're a human, you're not a bacteria, you're a human. And understanding that the human is one of the many species that are part of the, the thing that we call life, and they make we, in relation with all these others what we call this space, this planet, this, this uh, living entity, then there is actually something, if there is something actually empowering, I think, in totally owning our humanity, instead of distortions of what humanity really is, which actually don't then allow us to, to be what we are and put us in relationship with others. Yeah. So perhaps, I mean, the human experience is just a fact of how we show up and experience the world. So maybe it's that we need to recognize its subjectivity 
Yeah. And human supremacy would be the problem when we use our measurements to, for example, dictate what it means to be intelligent or what it means to have feeling, what organs in your body you need to have in order to be deemed, you know, almost as good as we are or almost as developed and advanced as we are. Most of us, and I received so many emails from so many people, including like academics, not just the general public. And, and the majority in the end, are, you know, if we boil them down, are just basically thanking me, which is really weird in itself, but thanking me for allowing them to validate what they already knew. Mm. It's almost like uh, we got to a point where thinking this way of, of, you know, humans as the model and everything against the human has blocked our ability to recognize that actually that doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit with the, the real experience of life to the point that people would not dare say unless someone says it. And then suddenly there is this avalanche of like, oh, thanks God you said it because I felt like that since I was a child. I felt like this forever. Oh, my grandma told me. And and all of these experiences, and people are writing their story about how they feel and, and how they feel like, oh, I feel so much better now knowing that it's okay. The fact that we should even feel that we need someone to say that, to be able to feel allowed to, to acknowledge the experience that we are having of life, that it's also troublesome. And it reminds me a little bit of, uh, what is the story of the story of the king with no clothes? The emperor with no clothes? And like, you know, everyone is cheering him on and they're all like, oh, wonderful, wonderful. And then there is a child coming up and tell, you know, I, I can't remember exactly how the story goes, but it, the, the child tells the father, but father, why is the emperor wearing no clothes? And, you know, nobody would have ever dared saying that because although it's the truth and is exactly what's happening and is the experience right in front of everyone's eyes, Everyone is too scared because, you know, they might chop your head off or you might end up in jail and rotten in, after torture or whatever. And instead, it's like uh, the child which represents as well the innocence of the human. And innocence is no naivety, is, um, is the part, is actually why, is that sees and acknowledges and feels life exactly as it's presented right there before any conditioning. And so if the father is a child that tells the father, so the, as, as, assuming the adult that is a mature adult, why are we, you know, the guy doesn't have any clothes on. Why is nobody saying that? It's incredible. And I think that this is basically what happened. Is like uh, the, the new work that is coming through science, not just mine, but the work like Susan and many others, and, and not just through science, actually. There is a lot of work done in the humanities that I don't think is being acknowledged enough, but they are pushing a lot of boundaries and I think it's, uh, it's really great because uh, they have other, other channels that they can use to express more freely in a way what, what should be said. But it's basically like uh, all of these movements represents the child in the story. And there's been this big emperor going around for centuries now, actually, telling us how we're going to live and how we're going to feel and what life should be feeling like. And then there is the child that is like, but the emperor's got no clothes. And he's like, oh, finally, somebody said it. Excellent. Now we can be like, we can relax. So I don't think this is going to stop. I really hope it doesn't, because if it does stop, then we stop. 
but I think it's not stoppable. And that's why it's yeah. a good sign. <laughs> I really love that analogy. <laughs> it definitely resonates. And it shows that perhaps we have a lot of deconditioning and deprogramming to do so that it'll allow us to feel more free and affirmed to yeah. be able to see the world more clearly and be more imag imaginative in that process. And so for you, beyond being more imaginative in how you approach getting to know plants, I know you're also curious to see the broader picture, to see the land, all the beings entailed, other agents, including various elements like fire and rain that are constantly shaping and transforming landscapes. And just to allow myself to be completely unbounded in my question here, have you thought about the capacity for land to have memory through perhaps a different way of conceptualizing memory that may be different to how we feel? And therefore, what healing the land's histories and traumas and severed relationships with their caretakers may require. Yeah, yeah, of course. I have been thinking about that a lot. <laughs> and actually, I think that that's where I'm going to. That's where I'm moving to. And the question really is just to become very clear what role is required of me. And I'm saying this because um, the the... I guess the new vision that I have, which again was given to me <laughs> during a very intense retreat a couple of years ago, and the name is uh, Resonant Earth. And it's not Resonant Plant or Resonant whatever, it's Earth. And uh, Resonant because, of course, it refers to the, the feeling that we know very well you know, when you meet someone and you go, you get on well straight away, there is a resonance and is an emotional and psychological, you know, the, the other gets you. But also resonance, of course, from a physics perspective is when sound actually is amplified by the way in which sounds come together. So, and it is hearth because I think, again, this is a project that is going to require the entire planet. And, uh, and I know that sounds very megalomaniac, but actually there is no other way because uh, there are no other, we can't keep working on chunks. And I really feel that if we, um, if we tackle the problem or what it looks like the problem at its roots, and again, we go back to the human spirit, basically, the, our humanity, then I think it's possible, I, absolutely possible for the regeneration to occur simultaneously across the entire world all at once. So we don't need decades and decades and centuries. We just need the human spirit to shift to a place where it knows, okay, this is what we as the collective are doing and we're doing it now. And so what my role at the moment, what I feel is my role at the moment is uh, waiting and I'm so bad at waiting because I'm so <laughs> impatient, but um, waiting to receive instructions from the land directly. And, uh, and for that to happen, it's become really very clear to me that I need to find a space which I can take care of long term. And uh, at the moment, I'm on a beautiful piece of land, but uh, I'm renting. And, you know, I, I'm not allowed to plant here. Or I'm not allowed to do that. And, and sometimes, you know, those rules are the human rules, of course, of my landlords. But uh, sometimes the land thinks very differently. And so I've been exploring and looking at this conflict between what the land would want 
and is asking of me and what I need to do or not do to, you know, not be in breach of my contract with my landlord. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so in that sense, it's becoming very clear that um, there is land somewhere where I need to put my own roots down and become that caretaker uh, so that I can observe long-term the cycles, I can observe long-term the, the patterns and dynamics, and also I can be there sitting and listening long-term and, uh, and responding to what is being called in. And of course, this is a very, can you imagine if I try to write a grant, say that I want to go listen to the <laughs> land and do what she says, exactly. Uh. So uh, let's say I've been struggling to put it down on paper because I don't know exactly how to formally speak of this, but it's actually very clear. It's like, a, and again, it's a very unscientific approach. And yet embedded in it, there is a lot of science because uh, I can see that a lot of the things that I've done up to this point, including like from a technological perspective, uh, will come to play and they will be useful. But fundamentally, as I thought about it more and more, I realized that even where I live at the moment, I have plenty of visitors that come and go and, and often they come and then they stay, and they stay, and all sorts of um, internal upheaval starts happening, and uh, and they go through a little, you know, change in themselves, and then when they're ready, they go. <laughs> and I think maybe this is what um, what it is that I need to do to just uh, create spaces that where I can, you know, regenerate my own spirit, but also for others to come and feel safe that, yeah, it's okay to regenerate your own essence and become human again. And the land is the one that does the work. The land, the being in on the land, the being uh, next to a veggie patch or the being planting trees or, you know, uh, we have a beautiful creek here as well. And I often go and I, you know, I've been listening with hydrophones to the creek and the water and the sounds are so incredible and and yeah I can hear so much more and in a way again here is where technology is actually extending the capacity of the human which are underdeveloped because we haven't used them for a long time but can be redeveloped through the help of technology in a positive way so that then we can uh, maybe let go of the of the technology itself and be able to hear and I did that the other day there is a tree that I climb regularly and I sit on it and uh, and I just uh, especially when I feel really like oh, I don't know what I'm doing uh, I go there and uh, and I sit on it and sometimes I just sit on it and nothing happens like I don't think of anything no no major insights nothing but every time I come down and then I come back in the house I always feel much more at peace and that in mm. itself is a beautiful gift and I feel like, okay, I can do this. I don't know what this is, but I can do this. But the other day I was, um, I had my hydrophones under the tree and I was listening to the sounds of the trees while I was sitting on the top. And uh, after a while, I just decided to take my headphone off and just put my ear against the tree. And I basically felt like I was a koala because I was hanging on this big trunk uh, sitting on one side and hanging on one of the branches and uh, and really literally hugging this big tree and and listening and the sounds were so loud that I realized that wow I actually don't really need headphones 
I've been doing this so regularly now that I know what what those sounds are. And it's like, oh, I can hear you. I can hear you. And um, and I, I it gave me these the experience itself gave me just the insight that if we spend enough time in the right environments, the even this human regeneration can happen really fast. And and I guess that's what uh, really resonant Earth is gonna do. It's gonna regenerate the human, and then the human will just feel naturally grateful and honored to regenerate whatever damage we have caused on the actual physical land with all the other species. So yesterday I spent all day planting because <laughs> because <laughs> what else can you do? You know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything is ultimately interconnected and it's like different layers of bodies that we have. So it definitely makes sense that our healing is all tethered together. And it's also really relatable because I also currently rent land and there are things that I want to do, but I can't. So I also feel Mm. called to be able to take root in some place and actually build a long-term relationship and Mm -hmm. listen and be called to do whatever the land may call me to. And I think this is also relatable for a lot of people because so many, given the human rules, are deprived of an ability and access to be able to build this sort of relationship with the land and to experience those relational shifts and shifts deep inside of us that can't be taught or just told, you know? So it definitely, the time feels right for, Yeah. yeah, for these different layers of transformations to take place and maybe hopefully they'll support one another and we can reverse this Mm -hmm. pattern of self-destruction and trend towards regeneration at every single level. So before we go into our fire round questions, I would love for you to share the greatest lessons that you've learned from working with plants and your inspiration to really view plants as teachers to honor. Yeah, recently I was told be permanently moved Mm. and what then followed was um you do not live in your mind you live in your heart so be permanently moved into your heart and the mind will follow so the mind is just the hands doing the things and it's amazing tool but the heart is the one that is the feeling tool the the listening tool and So, and as often is the case, I find that when I speak of this sharing, they lose, you know, they don't, I I don't even know if they convey the feeling that it was conveyed. So often those, as often is the case, even between humans, right? We often share something and is, we attach by the, what it's underneath the words rather than the words themselves. And uh, Mm -hmm. so that's the same for, for this. But permanently moved was um, was the message, and it's been taking a while, and and it's work in progress always. <laughs>
What is an impactful publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? When I was still living in Italy in my, you know, I must have been 15 when the book came out and and uh, this friend of mine said, said to me, like, Monica, this book has come out. And it just, the way in which this person is describing their experience is exactly the same as you speak. <laughs> and uh, what I used to say was like, you know, I, I know what to do because from the outside, it always looked like I knew what step to take next. But in fact, my experience was very different. But <laughs> So this apparent, you know, um, knowing uh, the way in which I used to describe it, it's like, well, you know, it, it looks to me like there are steps that I can see. And uh, I just need to put my foot into those steps and then I can just follow. I don't really know what those steps are and I don't really know where they're going, but it feels like uh, that's where I need to put my next foot and the next foot. And then every so often the, the steps disappeared, like in the fog. And then I know, though, that there are more steps that I will be able to see a little further. So I just have to trust and put my step forward without seeing. And then oh, there they are again. And I put my step mm -hmm. again on the steps. So the book that was describing something similar was the Celestine Prophecy. <laughs> and, uh, and when the book came out and my friend, all excited, gave it to me and she's like, you must read this because it's you. And of course, as I said, it's not necessarily one of the best books that I've read. It's a, it's a cool story and I really enjoyed it at the time. But if I think about it in hindsight, again, as always, uh, very easy, uh, there were a lot of things in that book that actually not only described the, the way in which I was and I am operating in terms of these steps, but also, you know, in the book, if I recall correctly, they were talking about energetic exchanges with plants and humans and how, you know, we are constantly in relationship. And it's funny because basically that's where those steps led me to. And uh, so who knows, maybe the book, that book was really uh, important to me. <laughs> hmm. What is a motto, mantra or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Yeah, I do a lot of meditation and I do Qigong every morning. And what are some of your greatest inspirations right now? It goes in, it comes and goes, <laughs> but uh, usually uh, I feel this sense of openness and feel like really inspired uh, when I think of the future. And I know this sounds strange because a lot of people at the moment are feeling very anxious about the future and I do too. But then there are those moments of great inspiration where I know that, you know, this is the biggest initiation that we could have ever asked for as a collective. And, and I can see within myself that I'm going through the same initiation within my own personal you know, life. And so it feels like uh, initiations always come because you're ready. And initiation are always there to test not really beyond what you can do, but what you can do. They, especially with the plants I've learned, that uh, they would never give you in ceremony, they would never give you, they can give you a very intense experience, but will they will never give you beyond what you can actually take. Even if at the time it might not feel like, and it feels like I'm going to die here, uh, but it, <laughs> they always deliver exactly the right amount of medicine. And sometimes you need very strong medicine. And I feel like this is initiation time. And so I'm excited because uh, I've been, having been going through many of those times in my own personal life, I know that what comes after, it's a, it's a great opening and, and growth. So, yeah. It's exciting. 
Well, Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Monica's work, you can head to www.monicagaliano.com and you can also follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of which will be linked in our show notes. Monica, thank you so much for gracing us with your learnings and inspiring us to be more free and affirmed to be more imaginative in how we try to understand the world and therefore be guided towards our paths going forward. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I don't think wisdom always, I don't think wisdom says the last words. Wisdom probably says the first few words and then allows others to follow. So I think I already shared the little bit of wisdom that I might have to share and the last words are for everyone else. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and move more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Allergic by Lil Idli. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 